Well, indeed, as Mike just read, this is the will of God for us, our sanctification. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but he has called us in and to sanctification. And we all know those who have walked with the Lord for any period of time know that the Lord's primary means of sanctification in the life of his people, the life of his church, is the Holy Scriptures. Jesus prayed, John 17, verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So let's do just that now. Let's open our Bibles to Galatians, the book of Galatians, chapter 4. Today we'll be looking at verses 8 through 11. Galatians 4, 8 through 11. The title I've given this sermon is The Danger of False Religion. Now, these verses are kind of part of a larger section that go through verse 20. So Galatians 4, 8 through 20, where Paul writes and speaks to the Galatians as their father in the faith. He shares his great love and his great concern for them that they remain in the faith. And he begins in verses 8 through 11 by speaking of the danger of false religion, the danger of them returning to their former ways of false religion. So let's read our text Just four short verses, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer, and then we will begin. So Galatians chapter 4, beginning at verse 8, and this is the living and active word of the one true God. Paul writes, However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. And I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now, and as we do each week, we acknowledge that this time that we set aside week in and week out, where we sit under the authority of your word, is a time that can only be successful, where you can only accomplish what you desire if you and you alone speak through your word. Lord, our prayer is that you would humble our hearts that you would grant us repentance where there is sin, that you would remove distractions, that you would open our minds, open our eyes, open our ears, and open our hearts to receive the truth. Or may we receive it and think upon it and dwell upon it and examine it and examine ourselves Lord, would you take your word and plant it deep in our hearts and cause it to bear fruit? Lord, would you show us the great glory of Christ through your word? Lord, would you sanctify us, your people, through the preaching and teaching of your word? We are but vessels and instruments. We are but those as your people who you have known from before the foundation of time, you have called, you have predestined, you have justified, you are now sanctifying and will sanctify completely in eternity when we are glorified. 
Lord, all of our lives are but a miracle that you bring to pass. So, Lord, would you now sanctify us in and by the truth? Lord, please help us. Please help us to have humble and open and eager hearts. Lord, for where else can we go for you and you alone have the words of eternal life? Lord, would you impart those words into our hearts today for your sake and for your glory, for the building up of the church so that we may proclaim your excellencies both here in Arab and to the ends of the earth and until the end of the age. Lord, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So as we've read in our text, we see that Paul is sharing his great concern for the Galatian people, his great concern that they would have received Christ, been transformed in and by Christ, but then are so quickly, so willingly turning away from the message of the gospel. You recall last time we looked at verses 1 through 7, and we saw the glorious transfer from slavery to adoption that those of us in Christ know and have experienced. We were slaves to sin. We were condemned under the law. But then God in his great love redeemed us through Christ. That's the same message that the Galatians heard. And Paul says, I am so concerned because you are so quickly turning away from the gospel that you have heard. They are under the influence of the false teaching Judaizers, and they are running headlong back into false religion. And false religion condemns. False religion, false teaching damns souls to hell for all eternity. And Paul, as one who loves the Galatians, is greatly and gravely concerned. We could, in a way, cross-reference Paul's writing here to 2 Peter chapter 1, 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter there begins by telling his readers to be diligent to supply moral excellence to their faith, to supply knowledge to that morality, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love, stacking command on top of command on top of command. Supply these things to your faith. Then verse 11 of 2 Peter 1, Peter says, For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Peter, in essence, exhorts his readers to remain in the faith by walking in obedience. And Paul's command, when we really look at it, is the exact same. Galatians, remain in the faith, and you do so by walking in obedience. Paul's been clear that that salvation is apart from the works of the law. It is by faith alone. 
But what becomes clear is that belief without transformation of the life leads to what Paul writes of here, the, the turning back again to the weak and worthless and elemental things of the former life. Paul desires that the Galatians would make their election certain by supplying moral excellence to their faith rather than relying on their moral excellence instead of their faith. This is not an either or. It is a both and. Supply moral excellence to your faith. Do not rely on your good works over faith. That is what Paul writes to them. And so our central idea, the central proposition that we want to consider today is that we must make our calling and election certain. We make those things certain not by fulfilling the law which was fulfilled in Christ, but as Paul says here, by knowing God. And knowing him causes us to be diligent to grow in godliness. So, dear friends, may we make certain our election, not by fulfilling the law, but by striving to know God, and in that strive to know God, we are made holy. We are called to be diligent, and we grow in godliness. So let's consider Paul's exhortations here, his warnings here. He kind of walks the Galatians basically through their spiritual history. He says, you were slaves to powerless gods. He says, then you were known by the true God. Now you are walking back into your false religion. And by the way, Galatians, as the one who has labored to see Christ formed in you, this is my greatest fear. You have seen Christ. You have evidenced Christ in your life. And now you are swerving away. And as the one who labored to see Christ be brought to life in you, this is my greatest fear being realized. So that's kind of the roadmap of what we want to look at today. Paul's taking them from their original, their original sin, their original life in serving powerless gods to their life in Christ, to their return to their sin, and to show them how he is just gravely, gravely concerned for their spiritual well-being. So firstly then, let's consider that former way of life. Verse 8, under the heading of slaves to powerless gods. Paul writes, however, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. Clark took us through that earlier this morning. There are these things which by nature, though man may see them and serve them as gods, they are no gods. There is only one true living God. His name is Yahweh, the great I am. He is the God that we serve. Paul says, before you came to life in Christ... You served gods who were by nature not real gods. They were powerless. They were impotent, and yet you gave your lives to serve them. And I think we can see two perspectives on this idea of Galatians serving powerless gods. You remember the Galatian church was essentially made up of Jews and Gentiles, both of whom were converted out of their past religions into Christianity. So firstly, we have this idea of the converted Jew, the, the, the Christian Jew who was a Jew who came to saving knowledge in Christ. They'd live a past life of submission to the law. They had brought themselves under the authority and the power of the law. It was a powerless God 
that they served because it was a God not of the Bible, but a God of their own making. Over the centuries since Moses had brought the law down from Sinai, the the Jews had brought all of their different twisted ideas that served ultimately their own purposes. They joined them together with the law, and they called that then the law of God. They had fashioned themselves for themselves a God of their own making. So whether it was only their man-made laws or even the the joining together of the worship of the true God with pagan practices, which was common for Jews of that day, these Jews served a powerless God. They served a God who was not the God of the Bible. Now, man by nature does not submit to the true God. Our nature is against God. We are our own gods. We are We form gods in our own imagination. Calvin would say that the heart of man is an idol factory. That is what we are before Christ. That is what the Galatians were before Christ. That is what so many of these Jews were doing with their false Jewish religion. They were forming and fashioning a God after their own desires, according to their own fleshly lust, to let them do the things that their flesh desired and still somehow say, oh, well, by this law... These fleshly desires are okay because we check some box of the law. So that's the Jews, but it's also apparent that Paul's kind of bringing the the Gentile Christians into the fold here too. But the Gentiles were pagans. They worshipped false pagan gods. Their pagan religion was one that served many, many different gods. And so before coming to Christ, Jew and Gentile alike served and, and lived in false religions. And those false religions, friends, were utterly, utterly powerless to save. Those religions were powerless to save, but they wield great power in enslaving hearts and souls and lives to things that, are not, that do not produce any hope. That describes every false religion, not just the pagan worship of the Gentiles, not just Judaism before Christ, but every false religion is powerless to save, but it wields great power and it enslaves hearts and minds to a hopeless future. So Paul is making clear that there is a great need for salvation in these people. Before Christ, they were under the law, they were under the Lord's condemnation. Paul talked about that to the Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 2, a familiar passage, he said that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So, So this idea of serving a powerless God applies to everybody. Galatians, to the Ephesians, applied to the Philippians, to the Thessalonians. It applies to us today as 21st century Americans. To understand the enslavement of the law and of sin, we have to understand there's kind of two sides of a coin that you see in what Paul said to the Galatians here in Galatians 4 and what he said to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 2. And we have to understand both of those to understand our nature before Christ. On one hand, he told the Ephesians, you are dead in trespasses and sins. You are passive. You lack life. You are utterly destitute of any power, dead, lacking life, and powerless. 
But on the other hand, Paul tells the Galatians, you were actively enslaved to these gods who were no gods at all. You actively gave and enslaved yourself to them. It's an active verb that Paul uses in Galatians 4 verse 8. So both of these statements are true. Sin brings death. It makes us utterly powerless to overcome that power of sin. But then when we are dead in our sin, we actively serve the flesh. We actively serve that which is our God, which is our own flesh, the prince of the power of the air, who is Satan. That is who was our father and our God before coming to Christ. So as Paul alludes to here, sin is truly a powerless God. Sin is that which by nature is really no God. It is under the authority of the one true God. Sin gives outward impression that it will satisfy, that it will fulfill, that it will bring joy. But any who are in Christ know that 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 allure of sin is utterly false. It would be like looking at green grass on the other side of a fence, not knowing that that grass was laced with chemicals that are immediately going to kill you. It, It looks good from the outside, but then when you get into sin, you become miserable. You see that it ultimately leads only to death. That is what sin does. And that was the situation of every man since the fall of Adam until Christ returns. Every man, with the exception of Jesus Christ, was under the condemnation of sin. So just as the Galatians were enslaved to powerless gods, friends, you and I were past tense, were enslaved to the same gods. But in Christ, we are no longer enslaved to those things. So let's think about that then. If we are not enslaved to those gods anymore, if we're not enslaved to sin anymore, what should our lives look like? They should reject those things. We should hate sin, we should love holiness, and we should love righteousness. So what areas of life, just stop and consider your own life, and what areas of life do you periodically live as though you're still enslaved to sin? Now, as believers, we know that we are overcomers. We overcome sin by the blood of Christ and through the power of the Spirit working in us. But in what areas of life do you still periodically or occasionally live as though you're still enslaved to the desires of your flesh. Every action either serves the purposes of God as revealed in Scripture or serves the purposes of your flesh. Say that again because I want you to be very clear. Every action, every thought, every word, every deed serves either the purposes of God or the purposes of self. We will give an account for every word spoken. So what areas of your life, what areas of my life, occasionally look like we are still serving the power of the flesh? Now, dear friends, again, the Lord saves us, and he saves us and frees us from that power. Jesus gave his life as a ransom to redeem us out of that power and authority of sin and evil. So it is an effective redemption. But we must labor and strive to ensure that we do not live under the authority of gods who by nature are no gods at all. 
We must strive to ensure that we live our lives under the authority of the one true living God. You will not be glorified or made perfect in this life. But dear friends, we should be increasingly conformed to the person and the image of Christ day by day, month by month, year by year, decade by decade. From the day you are saved until the day that the Lord calls you home, you should see progression and growth in godliness. We'll talk more about that in a moment of, of how we see that, how we walk in that, and to, to give you, I guess, a little clue, it is by striving to know God. So let's move forward then to the, the second heading, the second point that we are known by the true God. Again, Paul's walking the Galatians through their spiritual life. And so secondly, he says, you were slaves to powerless gods, and then you were known by the true God. Verse 8, verse 9, I'm sorry. He says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. We'll stop right there. You have come to know God, or rather you have been known by God. Now, that's an interesting sentence. It has some, some points that we need to draw out kind of grammatically, and then we can start to see the implications that flow out of this. Paul uses the exact same word in this verse in speaking of knowing God and then God knowing the Galatians. Knowing God and God knowing us, it's the Greek term gnosko, but it's used in a different voice. When he speaks of the Galatians coming to know God, it's in the active sense. It is them striving and growing in the knowledge of God. But when he says, you have come to be known by God, that is passive. That is a work that only God does. So in a way, this is a different knowledge because God's knowledge is different than our knowledge. But in a way, it's the exact same. It's, it's a term that describes an intimate relational knowledge. When God knew us before the foundation of the time, it was a relational knowledge whereby he chose us, elected us, and called us in Christ. When we then come to know God in this life, it is again a relational knowledge whereby we grow in the knowledge of God. And there's one more term to see here. It's that word rather. You have come to know God or rather to be known by God. Now that's not setting up a contrasting idea. It's more like a comparative term. He's saying you have come to know God or more clearly, more fully, you have been known by God. The knowledge of God comes first, effectively, is what Paul is saying. You have come to know God, but more clearly, you are known by God. His saving work took root in you, and now you are striving to know Him. So what does this have to do with the surety of salvation, the, the surety of our faith and knowing that we are saved? Well, we begin with this foreknowledge of God, that we were known by God. 1 Peter 1.2 says that we are saved according to the foreknowledge of the Father. Apostle John says in 1 John 4 that we love, we love Him because He first loved us. It was that love and that knowledge of God that brings us to Him and it's that love of God that causes us to in turn love Him. In Galatians 4, we're talking about the idea of adoption. Ephesians 1 
catches on to that idea as well. And in Ephesians 1, Paul says that God predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the kind intention of his will. Why did he predestine us? Because he foreknew us. Because he had known us. So then rather, more clearly, the Galatians have come to know God. They are coming to know God actively because God knew them. Because God knew them in eternity past. He set his affection upon them. He called them to himself. He revealed Christ to them. He's revealing to them how to be sanctified through the scriptures. And so now they are growing in the knowledge of God. So that's the passive aspect, that God has known us. But in the wisdom of the Spirit, there's the active aspect shown here too, that you have come to know God. Proverbs 2 verse 5 says that the one who seeks wisdom will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. Do you desire wisdom? Do you desire to grow in godliness? You fear the Lord and grow in knowledge of Him. To know God is to fear God. Not in that you only fear His wrath and condemnation, though as believers of Scripture we know that wrath and condemnation are real, but we have this reverential sense of awe, and, and, and we just step back and see the, the glory of God in His holiness. That is what it means to know God. It's to, it means to know that He is good, that He is holy, that He is righteous, and that we must strive to be holy, as Peter would say, just as He is holy. Paul later would tell the Ephesians, he prayed for them, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Would the Lord grow you in the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God? He continued, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of your calling. To know the hope of your calling is to know the God who called you. Not, not this distant knowledge of, yes, that's the God of the Bible, and this is the things that he did, but it is an intimate knowledge, a relational knowledge where we commune with him in prayer. We worship his glorious name. We study him, his attributes, his works, and all that he commands in his word. That is what it means to know God. One more scripture here, 2 Peter 2, verse 20 Peter there describes the transformation of Christians. He says that you have escaped the defilements of the world. How? How have we escaped the defilements of the world? By the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You escape sin and evil and defilement by the knowledge of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. By knowing him, by seeking him, by striving after him. Jesus would say it this way, this is eternal life. John 17, verse 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life, to know God. So friends, we must see and we must understand the surety of our election. And we know that because we are known by Christ and being known by Christ, we then turn and know him. So are you seeking to know Christ? How do you have assurance of salvation? It's because you have a desire to know your Savior. 
Are you growing in your knowledge of God? It's a, a legitimate question to ponder. Am I growing in my knowledge of the Most High God? How do we grow in the knowledge of God? Of course, it is by studying His Word. Not just reading, but studying His Word. Meditating upon the truth. Communing with the Lord in prayer. Gathering with the saints for worship. Being accountable to brothers and sisters in the Lord for how you are walking with God. So often it is a fellow saint that helps you understand God more fully. So are you striving with, with those biblical requirements, those biblical yet common graces? Are you striving to grow in the knowledge of God? Are you striving to know Him more? So Paul says you were slaves to powerless gods. You were known by the true God. And yet the rest of verse 9 and into verse 10, he then says, but now you are returning to false religion. Picking up verse 9, he says, How is it that you turn back again to weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. So he says, you've come to know Christ. You've experienced the fullness of the revelation of Jesus Christ and yet now you're considering returning back to your former false religion. Frankly, Paul is astonished. We pick up on that in his writing. He is absolutely shocked. He is, I think, heartbroken. He is greatly concerned. How is it that you turn back again to weak and worthless and elemental things to which you desire, you want to be enslaved all over again? Now, that's the important thing to pick up is that they desired, they were turning back again. To turn back again speaks of converting. So this was not just a personal preference or a personal opinion or a difference of conviction. The Galatians were adding law-keeping to faith as a requirement for salvation. Paul made clear in chapter 1 that that is creating another gospel. And those who preach another gospel, those who believe another gospel, Paul says, are condemned. They are to be damned for all eternity because there's but one gospel, there's but one way to salvation, and it's through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So to change the gospel is not to offer a slightly different take, but it's to believe another gospel. Paul says that they were doing that willingly, that they were converting back to that. They were desiring to go back into that. And what were they desiring to go back into? Look at his description. He says, you are turning back again to the weak and worthless elemental things that you desire to be enslaved to all over again. These things were destitute of power. They were weak. They were lacking any worth. They were worthless. And these things were fulfilled in Christ. These were the elemental things, the first things in the series. We looked at that last week, that the elemental things, when we're talking about God and his covenants and his way of showing Christ to his people, the elemental things was the old covenant of the law, the things that passed away when Christ fulfilled the law. This would be like a person starting in kindergarten, going through grade school, elementary school, middle school, high school, even getting a college degree, being out in the real world with a good job and then saying, you know what, I want to start back at kindergarten. 
Maybe I want to start it back and do it in a different language or, or, or something, saying, I've gotten all through these elemental things, these first things in the series. I've arrived where the Lord would have me, but I'm throwing all that away so I can go back to the first things, to the elemental things, to the things that are of no worth and no value when you've reached the pinnacle of the fullness of time, the fullness of things. These people knew freedom and power from being in Christ, and yet they desired to return to sin. They were freed from the condemning power of the law, and yet they ran headlong back into it. And just ask the question here, what reasonable person would run back into bondage? What reasonable person would be freed from the power of the law and say, you know what, I want to give up this, this glorious, abundant life that I have in Christ, and I want to return back to the law where I'm condemned day after day after day after day. What reasonable person would do that? I would argue that no reasonable person would do that. But that is the nature and the power of false teaching and false religion. False teaching and false religion destroy logic. They destroy reason. And this is the reason that we must so fervently resist falsehood. Well, we must so fervently resist and identify false teachers and false doctrines because they destroy logic and reason in the people in whom they, they lodge in their minds and their hearts. Satan works through these things, false teachers and false religions, to corrupt and to defile and we as the church, we as true followers of Christ, must stand firm on the truth. We must stand courageously and boldly upon the truth because these errors will take captive souls and lead them astray and lead them ultimately to the eternal path of condemnation. That is what we are called to do as believers, to hold firmly to the truth. Paul goes as far as to say in verse 10, you are even observing days and months and seasons and years. You're, you're, you're just completely falling off the rails. Friends, we see many doing that today. And that's not just a knock on some of the various hot-button topics today, but many other topics as well. There are so many who once held to a form of biblical Christianity who have allowed all kinds of heresies to creep in. They creep in unnoticed, and then they pull people down. They take them captive, and ultimately they can lead to the destruction of what was once a presumed faith. We know that those who are in Christ are kept by God, so those who fall away clearly were never in Christ. But those who gave the appearance of being in Christ are captivated and pulled away into corruption and into falsehood because the church at times allows false teachers and false doctrines and false religions a platform within the church. So in all of this, friends, we must be aware of the dangers of falsehood. We must be aware of the dangers of false teaching. These things have but one author, that is Satan. And they have but one purpose, and that is to corrupt and to condemn. Satan's only desire is to pull people away from the Lord. 
He wants to amass his own power and his own kingdom to his own glory. And thank God he will not succeed in that. For the Lord is all-powerful and he will bring Satan to his ultimate destruction. But that is what Satan works to do in this life. And we must not stand idly by and let him do that. We must stand and proclaim the truth. So lastly now, let's look at verse 11 and see there where Paul talks essentially about his greatest fear. He says, I fear for you. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. I hope you get a sense of the seriousness of this issue for Paul. Paul was a bold and courageous man. He did not fear many things. He certainly did not fear death. He certainly was bold in the face of persecution, but he did fear this. He feared that those in, through, in whom he labored to see Christ formed, that they would fall away, that his labor would be in vain. Now, did Paul think that he had labored wrongly? Surely not. He's so clearly outlined how he stands absolutely behind the gospel he proclaimed and the way that he proclaimed that gospel. But he does fear that the transformation witnessed in the Galatians may have been as a seed that was sown in shallow ground. Let's turn back to Matthew chapter 13 and consider, consider what Jesus has to, said about, has to say about seed sown in shallow soil or in rocky soil, because I think that's kind of Paul's ultimate fear here, was that the Galatians sprung up quickly, but then they were scorched by the sun and they fell away. Matthew 13, um, we'll pick up at verse 3. It says, And Jesus spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow, and he, as he sowed seeds, some fell beside the road, some, and the birds came and ate them up. And then others fell on rocky places where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. And others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, Jesus goes on to explain this, that the Galatians, you can already see how they had that appearance of the seed sown in the rocky soil. They sprang up quickly, but then when the sun came, they were scorched. What does it mean for the sun to come and for them to be scorched? Look down to verse um, 20, verse 20 and 21, where Jesus offers an explanation. Matthew 13, verse 20. He said, the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. Now, friends, the more I've thought about this throughout this week, the more sobering it has become. And I want you to get a, a view of how sobering that should be, uh, of what Jesus says here. He says, this, the, the one on the rocky place, they heard the word and immediately receive it with joy. So far, so good. You hear the word, you receive it, you respond, you see some change in life. But then he says, yet it has no firm root in himself. 
He is only temporary. And when affliction and persecution arise because of the word, because of the gospel, because of your transformation in Christ, immediately he falls away. Now, what is time-bound there is when the person falls away. What, what Christ says happens immediately is that when persecution or when affliction comes, they fall away. We don't know what level of persecution. We don't know what level of affliction Jesus speaks of there. And that's what's sobering is to think that you and I, even if not for the, the Spirit keeping us, the Lord keeping us by His grace, we could be those same people. Now, I do not for one moment doubt my salvation. I know that the Spirit of the Lord lives in me. But it's so sobering and it's so humbling to consider that when affliction and persecution come, I must drive myself deeper into Christ. I must strive to have Christ formed more deeply in me. Otherwise, I will end up as the seed sown in the rocky soil. I and you both will end up there if you do not remain in Christ. It doesn't say that after five years of walking with the Lord that no affliction or no persecution will, will phase you or that after this battle with illness or, or this battle with trial and suffering and persecution or you've walked with the Lord for 50 years, you cannot fall away. He just says when persecution and affliction come, some will immediately fall away. So whether you've walked with the Lord for five minutes or 50 years, understand that if you don't remain in Christ, if he does not keep you, that you could be the seed sown on a rocky place. And that was Paul's great concern, was that these Galatians were a seed sown on rocky ground. They sprung up, but then when, when persecution and affliction hit, they were scorched as as a flower by the sun, and they immediately withered and fell away. And this great concern should really be there for every Christian. If you have proclaimed the gospel and seen a life quickly transformed by that gospel, you probably understand kind of what's going on in Paul's mind. You've seen someone who's eagerly received the truth, and then you just step back almost and pray and hope that the Lord really and truly brings salvation in the life of that person. We trust the Lord, and we must know that He is the one who is able to save, but when someone evidences a changed life but then falls back into sin, that is a difficult situation to bear. But we must not let those fears keep us from laboring in the field of harvest where we are called to go and proclaim the gospel and invest our lives in others. These, these situations can be painful. They can be agonizing. They can cause great anxiety. They can be flat out difficult to understand. But we have to understand that God is sovereign. We may plant the seed. Another may water the seed, but it's always God who causes the growth. It is always God who brings the increase. We are laborers and workers in God's field, but it is God's harvest, and he will bring in his harvest as he desires. Our duty, friends, is but to be faithful to labor in his field. Be faithful to labor in his field. MacArthur kind of summarize this section, I thought, really well. He said of Paul, he said, How sad 
for such a faithful servant of the Lord to believe that all of the life-threatening, sacrificial service that he had given on behalf of the Galatians was worth it, worthless. All the travel, all the illness, all the loneliness, the struggles, and even the stoning that he received at Lystra where he was left for dead, MacArthur said they essentially seemed as they were all for naught because these people reverted to their old form of slavery to the law. MacArthur concluded, no wonder this is such an impassioned epistle. The thought of all that effort being void compelled Paul to write as he did. So with that, I think there's two closing thoughts that I would like to offer, two closing applications as we pull all of this together. Firstly, as we think about Paul's passion and Paul's compassion here, and knowing that other saints and other ministers feel the same type of passion and compassion towards those whom they have labored, we, we know one another, and if you have labored to see Christ formed in somebody, you feel a, a bond and a sense that you have given your life into that situation. And so as we do that, do we understand why so, some are so passionate about proclaiming and defending the truth? When you have invested in something, you are passionate, rightly so, to defend that investment. You are passionate to see that investment grow because you have put time and effort and, and tears. And, and when we talk about soul work, you have put your soul into it. So do you understand why some are so passionate to proclaim and to defend the truth? Now, we must not confuse such passion with arrogance or with mean-spiritedness. We must see that sometimes they're just faith, faithful saints who deeply love other people, who deeply love souls. And to think about that, there, there's one critical thing for us to think about and apply in our own lives as we want to be passionate like that, and that is the idea that, that we must be kind and humble. This highlights the importance of kindness and humility because when you are characteristically kind and humble, when you make a bold, courageous stand upon Scripture, people interpret that stand in light of who you have shown yourself to be. So if, if you are arrogant, if you are full of yourself, if you give the impression that you only like to hear yourself talk, then when you stand boldly on the truth, people are going to to understand what you did in light of who you are. So why do we not strive to be characteristically kind and humble and gentle and peaceable? When we do that, our hard and passionate stands upon the truth will carry much more weight. Now secondly, finally, examine your own life, friends. Just stop for a moment and, and think about your own life. Are there any people in your life to whom you would, toward whom you would feel such a passion, such a sense of angst and anxiety and fear if you were to see them teetering on running back into false religion or, or falsehood or turning away from the gospel? Have you labored so much to impart the truth on somebody that when they start turning away from the truth, you have this level of fear like the great apostle Paul? Let me just tell you, if your answer is no there, I would encourage you, examine your own heart. Examine the, own, the, the course of your own life. Why have you not been investing yourself into someone 
or multiple someones to see the gospel formed in them. That's what we're called to do. We are ambassadors for Christ, called to make him known, called to be as Paul desired to be, to see Christ formed in others, to see others grow in maturity and in godliness. So may we strive to make our calling in Christ more sure. May we evidence our new hearts that Christ has given us by walking in obedience. May we evidence these hearts by rejecting falsehood, by standing firmly and courageously upon the truth, and lastly, by investing our lives and the glorious message that our lives are built upon, the gospel, by investing that in others. May we labor, friends, in that through the strength that the Lord supplies. May we labor in that for His glory alone, and may we do so by standing truthfully and boldly and courageously upon the truth. Walk by the Spirit so that you do not give in to the desires of the flesh. The desires of the flesh are what produce those enmities, that division and that strife. So as we want to invest ourselves in others, we must walk by the Spirit. We must walk by the Spirit for the glory of God alone. Let's close in prayer.